0: This panel is going to be on the future of work. And I think almost all of you out there know me by now. Uh, But for the few of you who are new, my name is Michael Tanner. I'm a senior fellow here at Cato where I handle a lot of social welfare policies. And that includes uh, issues that intersect uh, with work. And as we all know, the workplace is changing. Uh, automation has brought uh, changes, we have a new economy, we changes in the composition of the workforce, and this is going to have, as it moves forward, significant impact on public policy. We're going to have to find out ways to deal with these changes as they're going forward, and that raises questions about the role of government in the workplace and in taking care of people who can't find work, taking care of people who do find work in a very different economy. How do we deal with these changes going on? Is there a role for government? What is that role if there is one? How do we manage these, uh, these changes as they go on? Or do they manage themselves? These are all questions we're gonna try to answer a little bit today. And we have a, a pretty broad and diverse uh, group up here, I think, uh, both in terms of, of topics and ideology. Uh, so we're gonna go right ahead and, and dive right into this if we can. Uh, I'm gonna start off uh, with uh, Andy Stern. Uh, who many of you may remember from his days as head of the Service Employees International Union. Uh, We've uh, certainly had some uh, good times with Andy here at Cato. We've had a very good relationship with him. Uh, uh, Shows that Cato, uh, unlike a lot of think tanks, really does try to reach out and have broad-based discussions. Uh, I wanna mention in particular uh, Andy's book, uh, Raising the Floor, which I think is a terrific book discussing the, the concept of a universal basic income. Uh, it has uh, some very good work in there, particularly, I think, the chapter where he interviews me is
1: <laughs>
2: uh, in there.
0: Uh, and I also have to thank Andy uh, for coming up today. He actually took a time out from his wedding planning, which I think is coming up in a week or so, uh, in order to be here with us today. So we're delighted, and uh, I'm going to turn it over to you, Andy.
1: Thanks, Michael. I'm not sure who should be more worried about our reputation, uh, you or... As Cato or me, since this is my second visit to Cato in 12 months, you are a major prophet in my book. And I spent last month debating on the side of Charles Murray against Jason Furman and Jared Bernstein about a universal basic income. And, but I did take the seat fathers to the left just to make sure I didn't lose <laughs> my identity politics in all of this. So let me just, I, I think about this moment and the future uh, in a specific context. Uh, When I wrote my book, one of the first people I talked to was Andy Grove, the founder of Intel, and he described, which he had written about, a strategic inflection point, he called it. And those are moments of history uh, where for a company or a country, for a confluence of events, not just a very linear kind of thinking, but a confluence of events, you reach a turning point where things are just different going forward, and you have to make major choices that make a real difference in the future. And so I start off believing we are arriving at that strategic inflection point as it relates to work in this country, that we don't really want to talk about it. As Andy Gross says, there's two consistent characteristics about strategic inflection points. Uh, One is you usually only see them looking backwards. And two, the first reaction is always denial. And I think that's exactly where we are in this country, and I think this panel and others are trying to figure out what to do about it. I like to use a little meme to explain why I think this is not my father's, my grandfather's, or even my 20th century economy as it relates to work. So we have Facebook, which is the most popular media owner in the world. It creates no content. We have Uber, the largest taxi company in the world. It owns no cars. We have Airbnb, the largest hospitality company in the world. It has no rooms. Uh, And we have Amazon and Alibaba, the largest commerce and retailers in the world. They own virtually no inventory. Now, that is not the economy that I grew up in. And what we're seeing, and, you know, sometimes we talk about it too much in extremes, like the end of work, the jobless future, the robots are going to take all our jobs. What I think we're seeing, in essence, is a slow but continual downward pressure on both the value and the availability of work. That's wages on one hand, and prime-age workers with full-time jobs, which is really the guts uh, of the old economy. And that eventually by degrees, and this is what happens when change is, is slow and continuous, you actually create a new normal. Uh, where the expectations, I think, that work is going to be a central feature of our lives is not going to be true for a significant number of people in this country. And that has all kinds of both economic, psychological, and other implications about what people do, how our countries exist, what's the role of government and the market and all of that. So we unfortunately start that accelerating change, which I think is about to occur, not in a great place. we now know, you know labor participation rate, which I know we're going to talk about, is, is low uh, in this country. 47% of Americans, 47% can't find $400 if they have an unexpected expense. 21% of Americans think the economy is excellent or good. Over 50% don't think the American dream is alive. That's where we start. That's our baseline. We now have more people on disability than men working in manufacturing in this country. And so that's our starting point. And then we add on top of it all of this reputable research. I think it's reputable research and it's not mine. So McKinsey says 47% of all the tasks in America can be eliminated by technology, 13% more when artificial intelligence is fully deployed. Brookings says 25% of all the jobs will be eliminated, by, can be eliminated by 2025. The Boston Consulting Group, they're in the low 20s. Oxford University, 47% of all jobs can be eliminated. And whether you talk to technologists, whether you talk to people at the World Economic Forum or the World Bank or the ILO, the future looks dreadful in terms of the jobs that are gonna be eliminated and what's unknown is what are the jobs that are gonna be created. In fact, the ILO goes as far to say that when it comes to footwear, clothing, and textiles, somewhere north of 80% of the jobs in India, China, and Cambodia in those areas will be eliminated. So I like to say change is inevitable. It's inevitable. It's just progress that's optional. And that, I think, is the question we have to face because that's what the predictions are and we're beginning to see them come true. We're watching Amazon and e-commerce really destroy the retail if you go to a mall now and watch the closings of the Macy's and the stores around the country. You're seeing touch screens being put into the McDonald's and now we have machines that will soon cook their hamburgers. We have people learning, creating ways to mechanize farming and other jobs that once seemed impossible. We have Watson beating you know, the GO champion, the chess champions, and every other champion that we can throw up from Jeopardy! onwards. And now using those that data power to really, I think, upset the whole healthcare industry in a very positive way, but in a very disruptive way. And that's before we get to the largest job in 29 states, which is truck drivers. There are three and a half million truck drivers, there's another three million people that support them. I think anybody who knows anything about auto or Waymo or whatever autonomous vehicle you're following right now. There's a rush for deployment. People I know in the private equity world will tell you that the idea that we are going to have people drive trucks, you know, from one warehouse to another distribution center in the future is a a funny idea. People won't understand why we would do that. And so that's before we get to autonomous cars and what that means to taxi drivers and other huge segments of the workforce. And so in all the major areas, people are working in Silicon Valley and around the world to try to reduce labor and substitute capital. And so we are at this strategic inflection point, and the question is what we do, and that's a a pretty major question. So I started out before I wrote my book thinking, of course, we'll have guaranteed jobs. You know, isn't that what the government's supposed to do, give everyone a job? And then you begin to think about how you would do that and the coercive nature of it and what the jobs might be that everyone's expected to do, which usually is in some kind of caring profession, <laughs> child care, and begin to think, Is everyone really want their son and daughter to go to college to take care of my feeding tube when I'm older? I don't think so. Uh, and I began to think about then, what is the alternative? And of course, I found Milton Friedman and Martin Luther King agreeing actually on an answer that I now support, which is some kind of cash grant, universal basic income, dismantle significant portions of the existing welfare, and if you want to end poverty, give people money. If you want to have people be entrepreneurs, give people money. If you want women to be able to stay home with their children, give people money. If you want prisoners to not go back to jail, give people money. (laughs) They all don't need government programs. They need subsistence. And more and more as we go to a world of uneven, contingent, Uh, work and downward pressure continues we need a floor of some sort and I think that floor is a universal basic income I think it happens to have the support of Democrats and Republicans there's many derivations and deviations of how you could do it but I think we have to make some really big choices now and I think getting rid of sort of government-sponsored programs or not creating government-sponsored programs and giving people choice through cash is the right answer to the future. Well, thank you
0: very much, Andy. Appreciate that. Uh, we're going to have some discussion at the end, and you'll get some questions in, but I want to move right along to Nick Eberstadt, uh, who as long as I can remember in Washington and no way I'm not that old, uh, uh, but uh, has been sort of a go-to person when it came to issues of poverty and welfare and, and uh, basically the organization society for the people who need help uh, in our society out there. Uh, and he's done a lot of work recently uh, on, the, on the topic of jobs and labor force participation and who has jobs and who doesn't. And in particular, he's got an important book out called Men at Work, uh, America's Invisible Crisis. Uh, he spoke earlier at Cato about, about that. Uh, he's also the Henry Wint Chair of Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute, and we're thrilled to have him back. So, Nick?
2: Mike, thank you very much, and uh, congratulations to Cato on its 40th. Uh, you've got a lot of friends and uh, well-wishers up the avenue who are real happy for this birthday for you guys, so uh, the more the merrier and all to the best. Uh, the, uh, the great labor economist Yogi Berra, I believe, uh, <laughs> said that uh, predictions are really hard, especially about the future, um, and I, I do not pretend to have a view of the uh, future for work. Uh, the disruptions that will perhaps uh, befall us because of big technological changes. Uh, I'm very open to the idea that this time is different. Uh, That was a title of a book by Ken Rogoff and uh, Carmen Reinhart uh, making the point that this time is never different, But, uh, but this time actually may be different. What we do know, uh, what we do know, uh, of course, is a little bit about the past, about how we've gotten to where we are now with work in the United States, in particular. And we've, uh, if we look at, uh, if we look at our trends over the last 50 years, let's say, it may give us a little bit of insight into the special problems that we as Americans may face in the workplace in the years, uh, in the years immediately ahead. Um, What we've seen in the U.S. over the past 20 years is a drop in work rates and in workforce participation by both men and women Uh, that is, I think, unique among all of the uh, Western affluent societies. And if you want to go back a little bit further, you can look from the 1960s to the present and see a relentless... decline in work rates and in workforce participation for guys, and in particular for prime age guys, the 25 to 54-year-olds who were uh, the mainstay in the workforce, the critical position in society for family formation and for all of these other things. Um, Now, there is a a widely accepted uh, narrative, I hate that word, but a widely accepted uh, storyline Uh, out there in uh, policy land, which suggests that the relentless decline in work for guys is very, very largely a matter of structural economic change. Uh, Globalization, trade, outsourcing, technological innovation. Uh, Some of that is certainly true. But that I don't think is the whole story and it may not even be the most important part of the story for the USA. Uh, Why do I say that? I'll give you a couple of reasons. Number one, if we look over the past 50 years at what's happened with workforce participation for guys in America, we have, uh, unfortunately, won the race to the bottom against other affluent Western societies. Uh, our workforce participation for guys has gone down farther and faster than in any other rich society, including de East sclerotic France, or lost generation of growth uh, Japan, or for God's sake, Greece. Need I say more? Uh, <laughs> the, uh, This I don't think can be explained uh, by the hypothesis that the United States is more globalized than Switzerland or Sweden or the Netherlands. I I just don't think that that works. Uh, Secondly, if we take a look at the exodus from the workforce, which is the main reason for the collapse of work for men over the last 50 years, we take a look at inactivity rates, percentage of men not in the workforce in this key group, It's almost a straight line up from 1965 to the present. I mean, it's as close to a straight line as you get in social science, you know. you can't see the Great Recession. You can't see when China entered uh, the World Trade Organization. You can't see the uh, different rolling cycles of technological innovation that have come into, uh, into American workforce. You can't see the good times. You can't see the bad times. It's a straight line. Okay, So that's kind of curious. Uh, a couple of other curious things that I'll mention. Uh, we know that men with low educational attainment are highly disadvantaged uh, in our modern workplace. At least they have the lowest work rates and the highest inactivity levels. Uh, but if you parse it a little closer, you take a look, for example, at married high school dropouts. Married high school dropouts have the same uh, work rates and labor force activity rates as uh, college grads. So there's some heterogeneity in this whole tableau that isn't. Uh, That isn't explained just by kind of brute social change and brute probability uh, functions there. Um, Two big unobserved facts, uh, two big unobserved uh, variables in this uh, sad saga I think need to get much more attention. Uh, Number one, uh, Andy mentioned this, is the whole role of our disability insurance programs. I wouldn't suggest for a second that disability insurance uh, creates the flight from work in modern America, but it certainly finances and sustains those who are out of the labor force. At this point, maybe three-fifths of the guys who are in this uh, non-working pool, this uh, idle army of seven million, are uh, obtaining benefits from at least one of these, and uh, gruesomely uh, inadvertently, this is connected with the opioid crisis because people who are on disability insurance can qualify for Medicaid, and people who are on Medicaid, if they go to the right pain pill factory, can get a script for $3 a month for 90 oxycodone, uh, and, uh, and that was, uh, that's starting to change in some states, but only in a few. Uh, The other enormous uh, question, Andy, I think, touched upon it, indicated that it's there, is our invisible army of uh, sentenced Americans, of people who have a felony in their background but are not behind uh, prison bars. Um, The government, in its wisdom, does not collect data on this. So we don't have any government data on how many men and women, overwhelmingly men, Uh, we're talking about here. But some of my uh, defiant uh, brother nerd demographers have tried to reconstruct these trends. And nearest round figure might be 20 million, Uh, almost 10 times as many as the, we talk about mass incarceration, but almost 10 times as many as the men and women behind bars today. Uh, That's one in eight adult men probably more than one in eight of the prime age men. Uh, until we get a more accurate picture on the dynamics of disability independence and on the dynamics of our invisible 20 million population, I think we'll, um, we, won't ha- we won't be as informed about what technological change is going to mean for our workforce as we should be.
0: Thank you very much, Nick. Really appreciate that. Uh, more uh, upbeat news. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've got a reputation around here of talking about depressing topics. I just have to keep that up, you know, as, as, as we go. Uh, I'm going to introduce next is uh, David Henderson, whom I have to say for libertarians out here is, you know, kind of a legend, I mean, in, in terms of economics. <laughs> going all the way back to your time in the Reagan administration. He's now a fellow at the Hoover uh, Institute and uh, teaches at the Naval uh, Postgraduate School uh, and uh, covers a wide range of economic topics. Uh, I'm always finding some new study or new paper that you've written or blog on on these things and uh, has has certainly taken an active role in this debate on the future of work. Uh, uh, Several uh, very, actually some very good dialogue back and forth with Matt Walensky and some others. So I'm very interested to see what you have to say here. So not to put any pressure on you, but but you're up next.
3: So I'm a little old fashioned. I kind of like to stand when I do this. Can you hear me? Okay. I'm really glad that Nick reminded us. I want to congratulate Cato on your 40th uh, anniversary also. It's been a fantastic institution. And by the way, uh, uh, Mike didn't mention this, but I was a senior policy analyst with Cato from 78 to 79 in San Francisco. So, um, is it ready?
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, just put in the chip. So, modern technology. <laughs>
3: um, this is weird. Uh, oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> Are robots a curse? So this guy, you've heard of him, Q Hissing. (laughs) Actually, he was in some ways not a bad economist, especially when he wrote about First World War and uh, the Versailles Treaty. John Maynard Keynes in 1930 predicted that his generation's grandchildren would work a 15-hour week. He wrote that in 1930 in something called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. Well, assuming that a generation is 30 years, we should have had that 50-hour work week by 1990. We, did we? (laughs) We did not. And we still don't 27 years later. So where did Keynes go wrong? Not, not in predicting our productivity. Here's what David Otter, who has written about, he's an MIT economist who's written about robots, and he seems to go back and forth between optimism and pessimism. He wrote, "An average. US worker in 2015 wishing to live at the income level of an average worker in 1915, could roughly achieve this goal by working about 17 works per, 17 weeks per year. Well, 17 times 40 is 680. So if you spread the 680 over 50 weeks, you've got a 14-hour week. In other words, we could have the standard of living Keynes talked about with that 14- or 15-hour week. So uh, because in the four score and seven years, if I may coin a term, since Keynes made that prediction, our productivity has multiplied and multiplied again and again. So then the question is, why don't we work 14 or 15 hour weeks? And the answer is very simple. We want more. We want more of everything. We are acquisitive people. Uh, think about car, uh, families in Keynes's day, 1930. It, many families had, had cars, but they had one car. Now it's non, not unusual for people to have two or three cars. We could do without televisions and smartphones. We don't want to. We could settle for being like most Brits and Americans in Keynes's time, never traveling more than 200 miles from home, but we've heard about these places called Las Vegas, Disneyland, Dave Barry's and Alan Reynolds, uh, Florida. Plus, we really like antibiotics. So we want more, will robots give us more? And the answer is yes, there's absolutely no doubt they will increase real output and real GDP. And that's why the fear that they will replace people because they'll be cheaper, they'll be more efficient. And by the way, if you've looked at the productivity statistics, there's a tension there between worrying about robots and productivity. Robots give us productivity. There's no doubt about that. Well, the productivity numbers are pretty, those growth rates are pretty low. So it sure isn't happening yet. But back to how uh, robots increase real output and real GDP. The story of economic growth is one of producing more and more output with more and more efficient means, and the usual way to do that is to increase the amount of capital per worker, and that makes workers more productive. So, will robots destroy jobs? That old answer that economists like it depends. Um, as Ronald Reagan liked to say, let's take a trip down memory lane. <laughs> let's look at automation through history. And let's look first at Arkwright's cotton spinning machinery. Introduced in 1760. At the time, England had 5,200 spinners, 2,700 weavers for a total of 7,900. 1796, long after that innovation, has dramatically changed that industry. 320,000 spinners and weavers. That's almost a 4,000% increase. Why the huge increase? Economists call it elasticity of demand those that technology just crushed the cost of producing clothing and clothing if you see some of those old novels you know they, they didn't have much and so a whole bunch of people were priced into the market and instead of having one pair of pants sometimes had two amazing and and many more people had clothing. so there's it's not a sure thing that This technology will destroy jobs, even in that industry. But now let me give you an industry where it did destroy jobs, and that is U.S. agriculture. 1900, 41% of the U.S. labor force was in agriculture, down to 2% in 2000. The labor force, of course, in 1900 was 27 million. In 2000 was 142 million. 41% of 276 million is 11.3. 2% of 142.6 million is 2.9. So not only did we do it with a much lower percent of the labor force, but we did it with actually fewer laborers, and we are producing output not just for the United States, but for the world. So yes, it did destroy jobs in that industry. Now, the worry people have is that robots are human-like, Well, I got another big change in the labor force that happens. Women are actually human. (laughs) (laughs) They are really close substitutes for men in many areas. So let's look at what happened when women entered the labor force after World War II. I'm reminded of that old definition of feminism. It's the radical idea that women are people. (laughs) 1950. 43.8 43.8 million men in the labor force, 18.4 females, million females. 2015, almost double the number of men and over four times the number of females. And of course, the total went way up. Notice that maybe on some margins, men lost jobs, but not really. Now, of course, I'm looking at labor force, not employment, but unemployment goes up and down all the time, so the labor force is usually a better number to look at. And even David Otter, as I said, who kind of goes back and forth between optimism and pessimism, said the following in 2015, journalists and even expert commentators tend to overstate the extent of machine substitution for human labor and ignore the strong complementarities between automation and labor that increase productivity, raise earnings, and augment demand for labor. Focusing only on what is lost misses a central economic mechanism by which automation affects the demand for labor raising the value of the tax that workers uniquely supply. And now let me just tell you a Watson Jeopardy story. I'm so glad that was introduced by Andy. <laughs> my, my research assistant who helped me go through this literature uh, added at the end of his summaries of all these articles this great story, I've got to tell it. By the way, his name, I want to give him credit, Russ Hooper, who was an intern here for a while. Um, the head of the project, the IBM Watson project, is an alumnus from my school, and so he and some of his team came and gave a talk. Afterward, they had a Q&A. My dorm's RA asked a question along these lines, quote, it seems reasonable that you could categorize Jeopardy questions into two categories, those that are easier for computers and those that are easier for humans. There were two humans and one Watson. Wouldn't Watson get the computer questions correct and the two humans would split the human questions? Isn't that unfair? The IBM team basically said, well, thanks for coming, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to look at another issue. So I'm fairly confident about jobs existing, but should jobs be the goal? Who here has heard the Chinese dam story? Not enough. I'm going to tell you the story in very short form. This engineer, this U.S. engineer, goes over to China, sees them building a dam, uh, uh, digging with shovels. And he says, why don't you use you know, more modern earth-moving equipment? And the guy, the Chinese guy answers, oh, because we want to create jobs. And the, Ch- the U.S. engineer says, oh, if, oh, I didn't realize. Why don't you use teaspoons? <laughs> and what it gets at is we don't per se want to create jobs. We want to create value, and jobs are a way of getting them. By the way, the Chinese guy could have had a much better answer. Our price of labor is really low. So jobs are not the goal. And here's another little conceptual experiment. Imagine you could suddenly be twice as productive in your job, so you could do your job with half a day's work and get paid for that whole day of output, so your pay wouldn't fall at all. Would would you object to that? And yet you'd be destroying half a job. Um, And there's an economist who's nearby who actually has put his money in the line with a bet on this. Here's what he bet. He's he's an optimist about this. Don Boudreau, I bet some of you have heard of him. I will bet you to this particular guy $10,000 straight up that in not one of the next 20 years will the annual US labor force participation rate as measured by the US Bureau of Labor Statistics fall below 58.1% which is the lowest rate on record. That was in December 1964. Um, so um, he's at, he, I asked him yesterday, does anyone take the bet up? He said no. So there it is. Now in my brief time, I want to just address something Andy talked about. Is UBI the answer? And my answer is no. Consider one standard proposal, Charles Murray made it, 10,000 per adult US citizens. Replace all means-tested welfare programs, including Medicaid, in 2012. That was about 207 million people. That'd be 2.07 trillion dollars. And all federal anti-poverty programs, including Medicaid, that would save about 700 billion federal dollars. So there's a net of 1.37 trillion in additional spending. That's a 40 percent increase in government spending. And Remember, we got that's keeping the deficit constant at that nice low level we have it at. And then how would you do that? Well, of course, you need more revenue, uh, $1.37 trillion in revenue, implied increase in taxes, 49.3%. With any reasonable supply response in taxes, it's going to be over 55%. That would mean tax increases across the board. FICA would go from 6.2, an employer and employee, to over 12. The 25% bracket would increase to over 37. Why give Bill Gates money? So... Here's my summing up. Oh, and, well, yeah, let me, I'm on track, I'm on track. I think there are three reasons the pessimistic predictions are too dim. One is what my co-blogger at EconLog, Brian Kaplan, calls the pessimism bias. People are just pessimistic. It seems easier for people to be pessimistic than optimistic, both about the future and about current affairs in the world. And he regularly wins bets when he bets people against their pessimism. Therefore, I think it's reasonable to adjust up people's predictions. Second, this might sound a little strange, Brian Kaplan talks about the foreigner bias. Huh, what's this have to do with robots? Well, if you look at the way people talk about robots, many of them talk that way the the way they talk about foreigners. Somehow they don't quite count. they're inherently biased against foreigners and they'll, they say they'll take our jobs and uh, there's that same bias with, with robots. And finally, the seen and the unseen, as the famous French economist Frédéric Bastier talked about, it's much easier to point out jobs that have been destroyed due to robots than due to the, ones, the, to the ones that have been or will be created. We don't know what those are. Um, uh, Nick said... It's particularly hard. It's it's hard to make predictions, particularly about the future. I used to use that line. I used to quote Yogi Berra. I actually looked it up. It was the famous Danish physicist Niels Bohr, who was quoted in the previous session, by the way. But here's the thing. Let me end with this. If you strongly believe the opposite, if you strongly believe the pessimistic case, go make a bet with Don Boudreau. You could probably get slightly better odds from him if you narrowed it down to 10 years rather than 20. But if you're confident... Then those 100 Benjamins are sitting there on the sidewalk. Thank you.
0: I told you we get an optimistic forecast too early. <laughs> <coughs> A needed antidote. Uh, last up here is Brink Lindsey. Uh, I have to tell you, actually, when I first came to Cato, way, way back when. Uh, I actually, Brink was the person I reported to, uh, doing some work on healthcare. care. So he's been around uh, off and on for a while. Back now as our vice president for research. And uh, he's the author of a lot of books, but I particularly want to mention one that's coming out called The Captured Economy, uh, which he wrote with Steve Tellis, who's uh, I think a little more on the left, uh, I, I would say, generally. Uh, again, sort of an example of our sort of bipartisan uh, outreach and efforts on many of these issues. Uh, so, Brink, I'm going to turn it over to you to kind of sum things up. Okay. Thanks, Mike.
4: Um, if you raise the specter of mass technological unemployment to an audience of libertarian and free market types, uh, you're likely to get first eye rolling and then some muttering about the lump of labor fallacy. Uh, that the idea that, uh, that technological progress could put us out of work It's based on the idea that there's only so many jobs and if you get rid of the ones that exist now, there aren't any ones to replace them. The retort is that human uh, needs and desires are infinite and so there will always be more work to do. Uh, That is true. So uh, technological uh, unemployment because of a lack of jobs is not going to happen. Uh, Nonetheless, I think that technological developments, the continued progress of automation in conjunction with other factors Uh, can degrade attachment to work, especially at the lower skill levels, and lead to uh, declining uh, labor force participation. It's happening now, it's been happening for years. Uh, I think it's, uh, unless we change our ways and change policies, it's likely to continue uh, in the future. And this uh, steady decline, uh, uh, first in men and now, uh, male and female labor force participation uh, is uh, is likely uh, to continue. Uh, And to kind of explain how that could happen, let me first give you an example, a real life example of mass technological unemployment in the US economy. Uh, There was once uh, a big component of the US workforce did a lot of work, uh, a big part of the US economy. Uh, They lost all their jobs. They basically disappeared from the workforce. I'm talking about horses. Um, So uh, by the late 1800s, we had tens of millions of them doing all kinds of things. Uh, Then the internal combustion engine came along uh, and uh, horses uh, had been displaced by technology. Uh, horses had two skills. Uh, they could carry people on top of them, or they could carry wheeled vehicles behind them, uh, and they didn't know how to learn any new skills. Uh, so uh, so when uh, they got displaced out of those jobs, again, there is uh, the lump of labor is a fallacy, so uh, there would have been jobs for those horses to do at some market rate. Unfortunately, the market rate for, uh, for that Uh, for employing horses uh, was lower in most cases than the cost of feeding and boarding them. Uh, And so horses were allowed to die and and we have a much smaller horse population today than we did uh, before. Uh, So the issue then is uh, for uh, our current context, if uh, especially low-skilled people are displaced uh, from uh, jobs because of technological progress and they are uh, incapable of or fail to acquire new valuable skills, uh, then uh, we could see larger and larger percentages of the the population whose uh, market value is basically lower than what they can get on public assistance, uh, and therefore they will drop out of the workforce. Uh, This could happen even in a Libertopia where there was purely uh, private charity. Uh, I think there's a general historical trend of a rising social minimum over time. However, that social minimum is, is, is provided for, whether it's provided for by government or provided for by private charity, uh, the richer we get as a society overall, uh, the higher the floor below which we think it's just indecent for people to live. Uh, and so if, that, if technological progress continues to the point where society overall is getting richer and richer, uh, and uh, uh, and the rate of the increase of the social minimum is higher than the rate of new skill acquisition, uh, acquisition at the bottom of the workforce, you're gonna have people dropping out and that's what's happening. Um, so uh, why uh, is, uh, is skill acquisition uh, uh, trailing, flagging? Uh, and it certainly is. Um, there's a basic uh, fact, a kind of two-edged sword about Uh, economic progress under capitalism. Capitalism uh, progresses, uh, uh, or capitalist progress can be described as making life easier and easier for consumers by making life harder and harder for producers. So consumers get better and better deals uh, because the bar of productivity to stay in the marketplace keeps getting raised for companies. And if they can't meet that bar, they go out of business. Uh, so, that's a great story if we're thinking about businesses and consumers, but people are also not only just consumers, they're also producers of labor. Uh, and so, life is getting harder for producers of labor uh, as the economy develops and complexifies. Uh, so once upon a time, if you could just avoid, uh, you know, if you could stay out of jail and avoid getting expelled, uh, you had a uh, and you could, sort of, you know, get through 12 years of school. Uh, you had a pretty bright economic future uh, in the United States. That's just not the case anymore. Uh, right now, uh, people don't think that you have much of an economic future unless you've got a college degree, and even that uh, these days is not panning out so great for uh, uh, a number of younger workers uh, in recent years. Uh, so the, <clears throat> the uh, expectations or the requirements uh, for, uh, for valuable participation in the economy go up over time. Uh, and they have been going up faster uh, than the actual skill level of the population. Uh, I, I, that there could be at some point we're running up against the limits of people's ability to, to acquire valuable skills. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think we have an educational system that is currently a two-track system for developing skills and human capital. Track one is uh, four-year college. Track two is you're a loser and a failure. Uh, and. Uh, that system uh, where uh, where uh, everything is geared towards sort of book learning, academic study, academic participation uh, clearly doesn't fit well with uh, a good chunk of the population. Uh, and yet, uh, there is really no institutionalized uh, <laughs> mass effort uh, to uh, inculcate in the non-college uh, bound uh, population uh, skills that will be valuable in the marketplace. Uh, if you add one more layer on top, which is that we have uh, a bunch of social and regulatory policies that actively discourage work, uh, uh, I'm thinking uh, first of minimum wages, which set a uh, higher and higher uh, floor for uh, below which if you if your skills are less valuable than that, you can't work. Um, Added mandates uh, on top of minimum wage that employers of low-skilled labor have to to pay, which makes uh, the price tag or the labor cost for employing low-skilled people even higher and makes it a worse and worse deal, uh, encouraging uh, people not to create those kinds of jobs. Uh, And then you have uh, social policies uh, like uh, uh, disability insurance that we've talked about uh, that doesn't just uh, sustain and make possible dropping out of the workforce, it traps people once they leave the workforce because it act, it requires you to do no work uh, to get benefits. There's uh, lots of people who have physical limitations uh, and uh, but could work part-time or could work with some accommodations. Our current system makes no uh, effort to get those people into the workforce, it just says uh, if you apply uh, to get in, you have to drop out of the workforce entirely. Once people do that, their skills completely deteriorate, and then they never go back. Uh, so, uh, I think we do face a challenge uh, in terms of what technological, the mismatch between uh, the demands uh, of an increasingly complex economy and the supply of people with increasingly complex skills. Uh, but that that problem is greatly exacerbated uh, by uh, uh, a, 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 an educational system that is not geared to producing the skills needed to flourish in the 21st century, uh, and social and regulatory policies that are actively pushing people out of the labor force. So uh, I, could we avoid uh, this ongoing steady decline uh, in attachment to work? Uh, I think we can. It would require a fairly radical overhaul of the educational system with much more Attention to vocational uh, uh, training and apprenticeships than we see now. Uh, it would also require a, a big overhaul in regulatory policies, getting rid of occupational licensing laws that <coughs> prevent people from starting their own businesses, uh, scrapping a lot of other mandates that that increase the cost of employing low-skilled people. So, uh, if we if we have progress on the educational side and on the social and regulatory policy side, uh, we. Uh, can face uh, the future of technological progress uh, with some confidence. Uh, But right now, the path of least resistance, I'm afraid, uh, is for uh, the labor force participation numbers, which for both sexes started going downward in 2000 uh, to continue uh, their downward trend. Uh, And that is not a happy story for uh, for human flourishing. Uh, It's one thing to graduate from the workforce because uh, you're a threshold earner and you've made enough money and you're not too materialistic anymore and you want to smell the roses. It's another thing entirely to be pushed out of the workforce, to flunk out of the workforce because you can't find a job because you don't have any skills. If you don't have the kinds of skills uh, to, uh, to have any significant marketable value in the, uh, in the workforce. You're not going to have the skills for creative, interesting, constructive leisure. So what you see in the time studies of people who are uh, long-term jobless, you don't see them spending more time caregiving. Uh, you don't see them spending more time uh, doing uh, community uh, uh, service. Uh, working in their communities. uh, What you see is they spend a lot more time sleeping and a lot, lot more time watching TV and playing video games. Uh, So uh, the sort of grim future, the the, the social reality of declining labor force participation is increasing idleness and enemy and alienation for a large chunk of the population, uh, which uh, produces desperation, which produces political convulsions. So uh, these are stern challenges we're facing uh, and uh, sort of <clears throat> business as usual is not going to get it done.
0: Uh, now we're back to the depression I'm so used to. <laughs>
4: uh,
0: all right, I want to I want to turn it over to you, and uh, we'll have some questions here, but uh, before we start, I have one question I want to throw out, and anybody can weigh in on this. Uh, there's been a lot of research recently coming out of places like University of Michigan and some other places to suggest that uh, there really are a lot of jobs out there, uh, but... By and large, men won't take them because they're perceived as women's jobs. Uh, they're caregivers' jobs. They're jobs that take less physical strength, more empathy, more that sort of sort of job. And there's simply a reluctance on the behalf of men to take these sort of jobs that, that they don't associate with masculinity. Uh, do you th- see that going on? Is, is there a, another set of jobs out there? Uh, I know some people said, you know, the future actually belongs to women because the type of jobs we're creating are actually going to be more suited to women's skill sets than to men's, and men just aren't adapting to this new world. Anybody?
2: I'm, I'll give it a shot. I mean, uh, there, there is some truth to that, I believe, but it's easy to exaggerate the importance of that. I mean, think right now, uh, in our uh, labor force as a whole, uh, manufacturing jobs are about a tenth, maybe a little less than a tenth of all employment. I mean, the horse, Left the barn a long time ago on the decline of manufacturing. And left it in the 1950s. Uh, remember as well that there, all that the number of job openings in the United States is actually not trivial. I think it's five million now. Uh, that's job openings for men and for women. There's a mismatch, as Brinkley's pointing out, between skills and job openings. There may also be a mismatch between reservation prices on wages and what people imagine they should be able to get for first jobs or whatever, and actual wages. I mean, all of these, I think, are in the dynamic. One last thing about guys. If you look at, the, at what people say they do when they're not in the labor force, Guys don't do care at home. I mean, uh, there's a care cast. Forty percent of women uh, who are out of the workforce say they're out because they're taking care of kids or somebody else. For guys, it's a rounding error. It's like 2.6% uh, or something. Uh, there's a, there may be a great big cultural change there that has to, uh, that, that's required for an adjustment. It hasn't come yet.
3: That is one thing. Sure. It's, it's not exactly that, but I see a lot of guys not taking guy jobs. Uh, so yeah. if you look at the numbers on truckers Like, I don't worry about that, Andy, because there's a huge vacancy. They want way more truckers than they can get. Hmm. Interesting.
4: What Nick said. (laughs) (laughs) I said what Frank said. I would only
1: say that every time I hear this discussion, and I'm not an economist, is where I'm going to really fall off the edge. I'm always surprised that wages aren't rising because when there's a shortage of workers, supposedly wages are rising. We have the lowest level of unemployment and we see no wages rising. It makes me wonder. You're a
0: better economist than you thought. (laughs) Here's a question.